Welcome, everybody, to the Greenside Podcast. I am here with Pete McBride. He is a Dartmouth College alum. He is here on campus uh, screening his film, Into the Canyon. He is an amazing photographer, video maker, writer, and public speaker. Uh, he's been over over 75 different countries on assignment for people like the National Geographic Society, Smithsonian, Esquire, Microsoft, the Nature Conservancy, and tons more people. And it's a real pleasure to have you on the show, Pete. Thanks for having me, Taylor. So I got a chance to go to your screening into the canyon, which you also have a corresponding book associated with it called Grand Canyon Between River and Rim. And I it was I really enjoyed it. And so I was an Eagle Scout growing up and I was in the Marines and I've I think from being in the Marines, I lost my love of hiking and nature because it was a forced thing. And I've slowly been trying to get back into it, but I just can't quite get there, but I watched you, uh, and you can tell about in your own words, but hike the Grand Canyon. My question is, how did you get that idea, and why did you think it was a good idea? Because if you watched the the film, it didn't go so well in the beginning. No, no. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't. uh, Well, first off, I'm not even sure I love hiking that much either. Um, I like getting outside. Um, wearing a heavy pack and walking miles and miles and miles isn't my favorite thing, but uh, uh, so hiking the Grand Canyon first it was hiking the entire length of it, which is just to clarify is, is a little different. There's roughly 750 miles. We stayed inside the canyon, so we went from the east side to the west side. Um, I think we did something like 100,000 vertical feet. Wow! Uh, did it over eight trips. Walked roughly about 14 miles a day. Um, 71 days. So it was a long trip. Uh, why would I do that? I think I did it because I have grown to love the place. And I feel like if some of us don't start, I don't know, stepping up in the ways we know how best, um, the world is changing. It's such a fast place. Uh, even our national parks are changing or, or potentially going to change. And the Grand Canyon is no different. And I was afraid that it's going to become a different place when my 10-year-old nephew, who's 10 now, what that park would look like when he's my age. And potentially he wouldn't be able to walk through the what would be the same park. It would be totally different. It would be full of uh, non-natural stuff, which in my opinion is, you know, as Teddy Roosevelt said in 1903 when he looked over it, he said, leave it as it is. The ages a bit work on it. Man can only mar it. And I think we're proving that we're we're poised to mar it. I think it's a natural. I feel like it's a natural human tendency to. I I don't know. Maybe I'm biased to preserve the environment, and I think it's become. I don't want to get political, but I think it's become a political issue. And I think when you watch a film like yours, and part of your film is the hiking, but it's also the story of I think the Navajo people, maybe some others, uh, and a small group of even just um, women Navajo, a very small group of elderly women, because fighting this this tramway from the top down to the bottom, in layman's terms, of the Grand Canyon. There'd be shops and trams and industrial stuff, and it obviously would ruin the beauty and the nature and the magic of what that place is. And, you know, I watched it, and it's complex because I think you point out in your film there that a lot of those people around there um, are suffering and need jobs, and it would have provided a lot of jobs for them. So you have plenty of Navajo and indigenous peoples who are in favor of the project, but... You know, you, you kind of balance it out and show both sides. But I feel like just sitting there watching a theater, 
it almost seemed natural to me to think, man, that would be such a shame to put this big industrial tram and put like a jack in the box. And it just seems like sacrilege. And, you know, and I wish I talk about this sometimes people get so bogged down and, you know, arguing global warming and politics and say, I don't want to wade into that. I just want to think if we can't drink out of the water, like if you can't take your son or nephew or someone hiking and drink the water, and if you have to worry about the fish that comes out of the water being contaminated and we can't breathe fresh air, no matter your political party or your beliefs, that's something that's worrisome. And I feel like it's something we could come together over, and perhaps that's something that your 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 the stories you're following can provide. Because you've done other documentaries. You seem to be focusing on the Colorado River and water. And I'm just curious what got you into that because you've traveled the world and been all over the place, but you seem to have come back home to your roots. And is that because you you grew up in central Colorado, I think on like a cattle cattle ranch? Is it like yeah. one of those evolutions you finally come home at some point? Part of that, I you know, I went out and did a bunch of different things and, and decided it was time to kind of head home to a degree. And But it was also, I went home to take a little time off and do a project on my own, and I... I ended up doing a project on the Colorado River and followed it to the end. And amazingly, I didn't know this, but the Colorado River doesn't reach the ocean anymore. Uh, right. Since like, what, 1998, I think? Yeah. And I didn't know that. And I grew up on the river. I figured I should know. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we're not connected to our rivers that much. And they just kind of flow through our worlds a little bit. But they're pretty important. Um, Colorado River supplies drinking water for 40 million Americans basically supplies our salad bowl for the country and of course it's the architect of the Grand Canyon and I think uh, when we dry up its delta now it's starting to dry in other places I just said you know when it's time I start focusing on things that seem to be changing at a rate faster than I want to see them change I mean kids at Dartmouth today uh, the Colorado River flowed to the ocean when they were born Mm. But not one day that they've been alive, basically, if you're a senior, has it reached the ocean. And it flowed to the sea for six million years before. And we never hear about it. And so I just figured maybe I could focus my lenses. Uh, That's the tool I use for work and for kind of the platform I use for telling stories. I figured I'd focus it on that for a while instead of another adventure. I love adventure. I love exploring the world. But this seemed like it needed more attention than than somebody climbing Mount Everest again, or um, I don't know. So I've focused it on on that because I, I I do think uh, I don't think it needs to be political. I just think we need to pay attention to our natural systems and what's happening. And I mean, we can we can live without oil. We can't live without water. All right. Yeah, that's that's what's interesting to me. I was watching one of your other your docs and some of the facts in there I didn't know, like the Lake Havasu, the Colorado Colorado River Aqueduct. Pulls water 242 miles west to L.A. And the Central Arizona Project pumps water 336 miles uphill to Phoenix and Tucson. I mean, I mean, it is a, a modern feat of human engineering, but that's quite a strain. And you think about just the populace of L.A., Phoenix, and Tucson, and there's so many more things pulling water and resources away from that river. It just doesn't seem sustainable, and clearly it's not because it's literally dried up. And there's one scene in... One of the docs you filmed where you're, you guys are trying to paddle, you and a friend try to paddle down the Colorado and you get to the end and before it completely dries out, you're in this weird, frothy muck and disgusting... The Frappuccino pit, yeah, as yeah. I call it. 
a little disgusting. What 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 was that? Just waste? I I, I have no idea. It's tannins and sewage and plastic and it's just gross and it's it's actually like when i was in that that was 100 miles shy of the sea of cortez it was in mexico just just south over the border and uh it's kind of amazing the river just ends right there and mexico gets an allotment of water by treaty and most of it just goes towards agriculture but what what i think is even more interesting is that's starting to happen upstream uh, Lake Mead, uh, which sits uh, behind Hoover Dam next to Las Vegas, that reservoir is at the lowest level it's been since they built the dam in 1935. Wow. And we had a big snowpack in Colorado this year, and so it'll give it a little bump. But most people are saying that everything's just too dry. We've had two decades of drought. and So we got too many straws in the drink on that system. Um, and I just think it's... Uh, it's funny, our our tension is just not that well focused. As the American public, it's not. So I'm just trying to use, you know, my means available to kind of highlight that story. Because I like, you know, I yes, I think we need the conveniences in our planet to make us have nicer lives with food and so forth. But I, I think rivers are pretty remarkable. They, they sustain biodiversity. They sustain fish. They support recreation. Uh, they're pretty darn beautiful. And uh, I think we've kind of sometimes lose touch. We're losing our connection with nature, which sounds corny on some level, but uh, it is it is the house that keeps us alive. And what I find fascinating is you're using, you know, you, like you said, pointing your lens at this problem now. And you've had a whole career of telling stories through your lens. And if I'm not mistaken, you came to Dartmouth. You weren't someone that was um, a big photographer into film when you came here. And I, I believe you... Was your, was your first job or one of your first jobs as a writer? Like you would, um, I don't know, you're like a newspaper journalist, and you would take photos to accompany some of those stories, and that was kind of your, your segue in? Yeah, I was actually, um, well, I was a, I was a ski racer. Um, I skied for Dartmouth, um, hung out in this building that we're in, in the first floor a lot. Yeah. And um, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I ended up... Um, um, Trying to ski race a little bit out of college, it didn't work out. I did a little coaching, and then I moved into journalism and was working as a writer. And then I started taking pictures, and they seemed to like my pictures as much or more than my writing, even though I was an English major and I had a little attitude about that being a good writer. <laughs> and uh, it, it just a light bulb went off, I guess, and I was like, "Huh, you know, maybe we can, maybe I can tell stories as well visually." And since then, it, it went from still images to now I do film. Uh, this film was for National Geographic Channel, and um, so I, you know, I try to use as many visual storytelling tools as possible, and it's been fun. It's been interesting. But yeah, I had I had no clue when I was at Dartmouth that uh, I would be doing what I'm doing today. I didn't I didn't carry a camera around with me. I didn't have a love of photography. I liked it, but I didn't know much about it and didn't know you could make a living doing that. And if I remember correctly, in your intro when you came here to screen uh, your your, doc, your documentary into the canyon, I believe they said there's approximately fifty photographers who kind of contribute to the social media or Instagram of National Geographic, and you're one of those one of those fifties. Is that the right figure? It's I think it's more like a hundred. Hundred. And uh, yeah, so we actually curate that account. There's some reg, you know structure they build around it, so we don't 
have pictures coming all the time. It's three hours apart, but we write the captions, we put our pictures up, and we all gather once a year and get to know each other a little bit. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty remarkable community. And inadvertently, we built the largest non-celebrity Instagram account on social media. Well, that's a cool fact, huh? Yeah. That's really neat. 106 million people follow it now. Well, I mean, the photos are just amazing, and obviously your photos are amazing because you're contributing to that. And as someone myself who is going through this, what do I want to be when I graduate? And I've been shifting away from politics and law and more government work, and I'm thinking, like, filmmaking. And I'm like, but I'm, I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never done it. Am I crazy? And it seems like, how did an English major go from writing and you kind of start taking some photos and start getting into it to being one of, I mean, that's like a dream job for so many photographers to be one of approximately 100 photographers from National Geographic and getting to travel to all these amazing places and tell these amazing stories to this photo. I mean, I mean, I don't know. How did you get there? I mean, maybe I'm just asking for myself. Everyone else can just not even pay it. Like, how do I, how do I do that? It's, uh, I hear that question all the time. I just was talking to some photography, um, art students, um, here at Dartmouth. And, um, I would say first and foremost, uh, it's hard work. It takes a lot of persistence and a lot of patience and probably harder today because there's less magazines. There used to be a, a bunch of different magazines. We worked for all of them and you'd kind of work your way into National Geographic, you know, step of your stepping stone so to speak and that's hanging on um the brand is still really strong the print side is challenged across across the map but um i think really important to find story story is king in my book um everyone can make a single beautiful image today with their phone Mm. um, or their camera so you have to learn how to tell story Um, stories are more important than the most beautiful sunset single shot uh and then just sticking at it and telling stories that mean something important to you you know personal stories that you you understand if it's i say stories that are personal because usually those are the ones you care about and you stick with the longest so for me my story has become water uh, with a focus on the west focus on the colorado river focus on now public lands and the grand canyon and that's in part because it's my backyard and I spent a lot of time there and I keep going back and I'm not always on assignment. I do a lot of stuff on my own and I just have a passion for it. And, uh, I've done work all over the world. I'm really lucky to do that, but it's, um, it's definitely a labor of love too. And that's, it's also why I do film. It's also why I write. I, I try to mix a lot of different, uh, tools in my toolkit because it is a hard world and you can't, put all your eggs in just the photography basket or just filmmaking or just writing mm-hmm. unless you're really really talented which i'm not i'm i'm a hard worker i'm a worker bee all right and I, th- I believe you said in your q a session that you don't specifically tag the locations of, of your photos maybe like the general area um i was curious why why don't you tag the specific areas you don't want people to overuse them it's it's become a bit of a thing because of social media and Instagram as people are going out and trying to get their Instagram shot. Uh, and so places that I used to go to that are beautiful, stunning places and you'd be the only person there are now have a line of 300 people and they're all trying to go do the exact same photo. And it's, it's not creative in the photography sense. Everyone just kind of copying 
the same image and getting it themselves. It's still fun. It's beautiful to visit these places. And I'm not trying to keep people away. I'm not trying to deny access and say, I went, you shouldn't. I'm just being more aware that um, I think in today's world with the internet and social media, it's an easier way f for people to find information. And some of these landscapes are sensitive. And as a result, for instance, there's archaeology sites that have been trampled and actually robbed from because people were posting on the Internet about how to check out this cool pictograph, and now they're gone. Wow. Yeah, it's a shame. I I just saw, like a, I think it was a Vice News clip. It was a a clip of, I think it was a, like poppies out in California, these beautiful flowers, and they're in, an, they're in a state or national park. And so many people are going there and trampling the flowers, trying to get their stupid pictures and their goofy shots and their glamour shots. And it's remember like a pony out there. It's just like, I mean, those are delicate flowers. And once you sit on them for your picture, you've ruined, you know, 20 flowers just with your butt on the grass. You know, so it's like, dang, everyone does that. And you multiply that. You're destroying this amazing natural resource just for like this, this photo. And, you know, we were talking and thinking about, um, the Into the Canyon documentary. Um, and right now that's out on the National Geographic channel. Is that how people can see and it? And Hulu. And Hulu? Okay. Yeah, it's definitely worth a watch. I encourage anyone listening to give it a watch. Nice. It made me want to hike again, which is tough to do. But it made me think about a piece I read here freshman year in one of my English classes. And it was it was like when you go to someplace, and they use the Grand Canyon specifically, you now have this predetermined experience you're supposed to have or that photo. I think either in the dock or you, you've said the average time people spend at the rims like less than 10 minutes. Basically, they get a photo. Seven minutes. Seven minutes, and they go, ooh-ah, and leave. And I was like, wow. And that, but that makes so sense to think about how our, our culture works. But I read, we were reading this piece. It's like no one will ever fully experience the Grand Canyon, like the people who first just stumbled across it. They never didn't know it existed, never saw a photo, didn't even know, didn't even know it existed, period. And they just kind of came across and like, oh, my God. And they just stood there. And they had an experience, an experience that none of us will ever have. But I kind of think your trip was unique because one of the other the other facts you gave is there's more people have you know done I've walked on the moon than done through hikes of the Grand Canyon. I think it's twelve people on the moon, like nine that have done through hikes. And I know you end up having to split your your hike up and do the different seasons, which was a cool way of seeing the canyon in different seasons because it's very different in the summer than freezing in the winter. But you still had a very unique experience. Most people don't hike the whole thing. Um, did do you think it it was like a religious experience? Did you feel like you it changed you? Because it's obviously very challenging. At some points, you're short on water. I mean, what effect do you think it had on you personally, more so than other adventures you've undertaken? It's uh, it's a really good question because it. I think it changed me a lot, actually. Uh, so I've 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 had some amazing adventures from. Mount Everest to Antarctica. Um, but this was different in part because it was it was longer. Um, it was more logistically challenging. Uh, I had to find water every single day. You can only carry enough water basically for one day. And of course, I photographed the whole thing for National Geographic magazine. I did this book. But what I came away with, which I talk about when I do talks to public audiences, is the thing that sticks with me more than anything is the place is obviously huge and spectacular and visually daunting and 
full of beautiful light and texture and layers and scale that's hard for our brain to comprehend. But the the thing that literally kind of haunts me is the the auditory, the silence. Mm. And it's um, it makes me now seek silence. And it's not silence just void of sound. It's silence that's rich in natural sounds. It's the you know the sound of whatever bees in the spring or or the clatter of sheep hooves on the far distant side of the canyon that you didn't realize it was a sheep until you sort of looked around and then realized it was on the other side of the canyon miles from you and it's it's like it awakes this hearing ability in 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 you that you forgot you had it's kind of ancestral hearing sense and i think it's often just crushed because we live in such a noisy world but I think that changed me a little bit because I kind of like keep this little jar of silence kind of in my head now. And I kind of look for it. it. It helps me chill out at times. It makes me realize there's a value in that. There's a value in going out and being quiet. And even if you're in New York City, I'll go, you know, try to just calm down in a place and then take it in and not be in the frantic rush. Mm. So that was cool, uh, realizing how clear and crisp and rich the night sky is seeing our milky way um makes me more aware of light pollution which doesn't seem like a big deal until you start realizing that we're basically blanketing the whole world in, in light pollution and we can't see our stars anymore and the stars are pretty awesome i think all of them adds up to a bit of reminding us you know of of, of just teaching us humility just reminding us that we're small in this place and nature ultimately is boss i know we'd like to think we are but uh uh that's cool i think also that there's people have been living in the grand canyon for a long time there's you know these there's artwork that goes back four thousand years some say older and um i often wonder did these people go away was there a huge event and you realize that they haven't gone really anywhere they're living around the park and um, there's 11 Native American tribes that live around the park, and they have a pretty interesting voice. You mentioned these 12 Navajo women that have pushed back a billion-dollar development project. Shows what some pretty dedicated grannies can do when they feel committed about the sacredness of a landscape. They can, you know, stop that size development um, in its tracks temporarily. They're not going away, but. So that was very eye-opening, but overall, I think, yeah, to a certain degree, I've, 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 my life is perhaps I've tried to make it a little more simple and, and aware of these these gems that we have in the natural world. It's so hard to get to not get sucked back in to all the things of this world because I remember when I left Afghanistan seven months, very remote. You know, there's no phone in your pocket. Uh, well, quick aside to that, what's interesting is I think for the first month when you're if you're out in the woods or doing something. I would have these phantom feelings on my leg that my phone was vibrating. And that's when I realized maybe I have a problem. I would like reach down from my pocket and be like, oh, it's vib. Oh, I don't have a phone. Like, what? Don't I-, I know I felt it. I swear I felt it. I'm like, wow, I really got to disconnect. So I did seven months of that. I'm like, wow, I'm- I've totally broken the cycle. It's over. And then you come back and you get your phone back and you're back on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And it's like, man, it's so easy to fall back into it if you don't stay conscious. Another thing I thought of is, Water. Uh, water is always a theme for you. But during your trip, there are times you dangerously ran out of water. 
uh, I feel like that's incredibly humbling because we live in this world that's so, at least in America, seems so safe. You never have to worry about getting water to you. And I think you point out you could hit like an SOS button on a tracking device, but it could be 48 hours or so before the National Park Service or anyone gets to you. I mean, did you just feel incredibly humble constantly being in Grand Canyon, especially when you were trying to suck puddles for water and you couldn't even find the puddles? I mean, that's a very humbling thing to literally not have water to sustain life. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you felt the same way in Afghanistan at times. I mean, it's you, we, I mean, water comes from the tap. Who, who in the modern world thinks about where their next drink is going to come from of water or the bar, whatever? Right, yeah. It's around us. But suddenly when you're brought back to that basic need and level, it, it is, it's humbling, it's scary, it's kind of wonderfully humbling. It kind of puts you back in the moment of feeling alive and more present. And there's something pretty, uh, pretty cool about that. And it's hard to describe. And I think there's value in it. I think, um, I think it just reminds us of, of, you know, the larger things than the buzz on your pocket of the phantom phone or not. I get the phantom phone buzz too occasionally. Right. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I think it'd be good for everyone at some level to experience that and remind us that water doesn't come from the taps actually. And uh, food doesn't come from aisle seven in the grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. But before we wrap up, I have some, some cheesy like fan questions really to ask you. I know they're like, it's like, where of all the travels you've been, do you have a favorite uh, region or place or, or if it's not that, do you have a favorite type of story that you like to tell? If it's not even a location, do you, do you find yourself being, I mean, lately you're gravitated towards back home and the rivers and Grand Canyon, the Colorado, but you've traveled to what, over 70, 75 different countries. Is there certain stories, if you have your choice of assignment, that like pulls at you more personally than others? Or location maybe even. Yeah, I, I think, uh, well, there's certain locations I like. I've grown to love places like Grand Canyon. Um, I love the Himalaya. I worked a lot in East Africa. Um, but I like stories where I'm challenged, not physically, but challenged by seeing the world that there's a different way to do it. Uh, like I, I just did a project in East, um, in northern Kenya, and I was working with these women that make bracelets, beaded bracelets that they sell all over the world, from you know from New York to California to Australia, and they're basically these tribal women that are pastoralists that have changing their lives. And they were beating their little bracelets. I'm wearing one right now. Um, nice. They're nice. really simple. But uh, we spent so much time talking about being happy, happy this, happy that, what's going to make your life happier. These ladies were sitting in dirt, basically beating these little beaded bracelets for some group in the Australia Zoo, going to ship it around the world. And they're trying to save their little world and protect giraffes and protect their grazing lands and doing make a little more income, get their kids in school. But they were uh, they were so happy. They were all singing jointly. This cool little community and just a really simple, beautiful life. And it just reminds me there's no one way to do things on this planet. There's no one way to happiness. And stuff doesn't make us happy. It's uh, you know it's the people around us and how we live does. So that. Those stories are always cool to see that. So you had all these amazing adventures for you know for you traveled and focusing locally Colorado River Grand Canyon. But what's next for you? What's do you see a 
a new challenge in the horizon or do you want to continue to to advocate um you know for these these Colorado water resource issues and things like that what's next for you i'll probably stay on the uh i think i'll stay on the waterfront it's not going away right uh, i think public lands will always be kind of in the background for me how we how we pass forward this this notion of shared landscapes landscapes that none of us were born in but we all share and call our own it's an interesting concept and will we pass them forward you know as they are untrammeled are we going to fill them up with noise and lights um water will definitely stay on the forefront i've also liked this idea of of finding a kind of um, spiritual contentment if you will a happiness level through physical challenge to a degree um and simplicity Mm. which i experienced in this last project um there's plenty of people that have been doing it around the world for a while and from monks to many others there's plenty of people in today's modern world that push their their bodies to nth degrees when they don't have to why do we do that Uh, it's an interesting concept are you going to do any Spartan races, any cross-desert, major, 100-mile desert? I, don't know. I was talking to a guy who does that. Uh, I don't know. That may be too much for me. I've done a lot of endurance races, but uh, this Grand Canyon was sort of an endurance race on some level, race against you know finding water. But I'll probably also want to just go home, too, enjoy home, enjoy yeah. friends and family, and um, not always be on the, on the move. I imagine, because you've probably obviously been gone a lot. Your job's taking, taking you to a lot of different assignments overseas sometimes it's nice to just reconnect and keep it simple and i, I want to thank you for coming to the podcast i want to encourage people to see your documentary into the canyon you can find it on hulu you can find it when it uh, is on national geographic channel also the book grand canyon between rim, river and rim i encourage you to check it out and really thank you for coming on i i'm jealous maybe one day i i'll be taking photos and cool films too so this is inspiring for me and thank you for coming on the podcast and uh thanks for having me join me out in the field yeah i'll see you there <laughs> <Good deal. laughs> right, this is uh the green side podcast